uh, provide a fix to the kind of problems with algorithms and bias uh, and missing data in, in, in training algorithms. If you want to kind of become an expert on crowd predictions, it's upstairs in 6.1. And if you want to participate in the Collect Intelligence Playbook session, it's in 6.3. Um, I'm not going to say anything more because we've got a fantastic chair to run us through the session. So I'm going to hand over to Imran now to talk us through it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, welcome indeed to this session on data gaps. Uh, we're going to be talking about missing data this afternoon, um, how that can create biases, how that can create um, unfairness in society, particularly when we're living in a world of, of big data and algorithms uh, that are only as good as the underlying data. Um, the format for the session is, in a minute, I'm going to be, well, in a few minutes, I'm going to be introducing a fantastic panel that are going to be talking through some of the issues around data gaps, why they exist, what kinds are they, what can we do about them, and crucially, what's the role of collective intelligence in addressing them. But before we do that, we're going to have a presentation on Nesta's work uh, on data gaps. Uh, I'm going to invite Kath Sleeman up to the stage. Uh, she is well, uh, Nesta's, you said Welcomes, Nesta's head of data visualization. She's going to be talking to you through, uh, through some of our work uh, on gender, gender data gaps. Kath, come up. Uh, on the slide thing. <laughs> <laughs> How is it? Oh, perfect. Mate, thanks very much. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Kathy Sleeman, and I'm a data scientist here at Nesta. Um, in the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to tell you about a data gap uh, that we've been trying to fill here. Um, I'm going to tell you what we found and where I think data gaps uh, still remain. Uh, so we're focused on the creative industries in the UK. Uh, that includes areas like fashion, IT, publishing, museum, crafts and the like. Uh, and the data gap that we've been trying to fill uh, is about measuring gender imbalances amongst workers uh, in those creative industries. Uh, so for a long time, surveys have been our kind of go-to method for measuring gender the kind of gender mix amongst workers. Um, and it's great that these surveys are being run, but as a method, surveys do have a couple of drawbacks. Uh, the first is that they can be really slow to tell you what's happening. If we launched a new survey today, it could take us several years before we start to be able to see the long-term kind of trends that are emerging. Uh, and most surveys in the creative industry space have only been running for a few years, so we don't have those, that kind of long-run picture uh, on the gender mix. The second drawback is that surveys tend to tell us about one aspect of gender balance, uh, which is the number of men and the number of women. Um, but equality is much more than just you know, the number of people in the room. It's about how prominent each group was. Uh, it's about how they were portrayed on stage or screen. And ultimately, it's about the power that each group had in, the kind of in these creative workspaces. So by not measuring these other aspects, uh, we risk narrowing our definition of gender equality and just focusing on the bit that's easiest to measure. So how might uh, big data then help us to address some of these limitations that we see in surveys? Uh, we've carried out a couple of projects that kind of have this aim in mind. Uh, the first is a study um, that uses a data set of film credits from the British Film Institute. Uh, the data set contained the cast and crew members of every single UK film um, over the last 100 years. Uh, that amounts to about 10,000 films and quarter of a million uh, unique people. So the BFI had inferred the gender of every cast and crew member, 
and that allowed us to um, instantly look back a hundred years. Uh, and we found that there's really been no real improvement in the on-screen gender mix since the end of World War II. Uh, and it's really just fluctuated between about 25% and 35%. But using this approach, we were able to kind of dis dispel that myth that there has been any type of kind of steady improvement over time. Uh, but we also wanted to look at other aspects of gender balance, like uh, the differences in career lengths of men and women, and the differences in the characters that men and women uh, get to play on screen. Uh, we found that kind of amongst unnamed or like minor uh, film characters, those who are working in highly skilled occupations, they were much more likely to be played by men rather than women. So, for example, since 1985, only 16% of on-screen doctors have been played by women, but in the wider UK workforce, women make up 50% of doctors. So that gap is really important because the film industry can obviously, you know, they're in a position where they can affect our aspirations and our expectations about who works in these types of occupations. The second project was about using big data to examine how the media reports on women uh, working in the creative industries. Uh, we focused on the Guardian newspaper for this project. They write extensively about the UK's creative industries uh, and they offer kind of open access to their content, which is quite unique. So the data set we used in this project was made up of half a million articles from the Guardian that had been published over the last 19 years. And we just looked at articles that had been published in the creative sections of the paper. So book reviews, film reviews, technology, uh, fashion, things like that. Uh, so this chart shows the percentage of male and female pronouns uh, in those articles uh, each year. And you can see that between 2000 and 2013, less than a third of the gendered pronouns within articles uh, were referring to women. Uh, but that began to change in 2014, and then by 2018, uh, would got up to 40%. And that meant that last year was the first year in which The Guardian made more references to women than there are, um, than the percentage of women who are working uh, in the creative industries, which was a first. Uh, but we also wanted to look at the words that follow those pronouns he and she uh, within the articles. And we found that there was a relatively greater focus on the way that women sound uh, and on their nonverbal reactions. So things like smiling, nodding, grinning, uh, things like that. Um, and it's not that these words were used particularly frequently, it's just that when they were used, uh, they were significantly more likely to be referring to women uh, rather than men compared to other words. And then words related to past creative achievements and leadership roles, they were more frequently referring to men. So you're much more likely to see he directed than she directed, and that really just reflects the imbalances that we've had uh, for many decades in the creative industries itself. Uh, so those were just a couple of studies that we've carried out in recent years. Um, I'll just end by talking about where I think there are still, uh, like where the kind of data gaps remain. I think there are two questions um, that we struggle to answer with data. The first is um, how or why these gender imbalances came to be. So why are there so few female directors? What barriers are they facing? And of course, being able to answer that question is really important because it will affect uh, the action that we take. Part of the reason I think that there are so few data-driven studies in this area is that we don't have much panel data, so we don't have comprehensive uh, information about people's careers. The other kind of outstanding question for us is, what does the gender mix look like right now? So what you'll find is that most studies, uh, mine included, <laughs> analyze static data sets. We publish one-off reports, and those reports can become out of date quite quickly. 
Uh, one exception, though, to that is the BFI's filmography. Uh, it's a website, and you can look up the gender mix of any British film, and it's been continually updated. But obviously, building something like that requires extensive data infrastructure. It can be really expensive, um, especially for creative organisations who perhaps have limited resources. Um, though resource constraints, I think, is just one of kind of many issues uh, facing this type of research. And some of those issues are really complex. They show that we face real trade-offs uh, in conducting this type of research. So we need to balance the kind of privacy laws and ethical considerations against the risks of not exposing what may be large and very persistent uh, gender imbalances. It's just one example, but it shows that we've got a real responsibility to uh, not just sell the potential of big data, but to expose those limitations and trade-offs that we face. So to that end, I'm really keen to hear everyone's thoughts about um, how collective intelligence might help us to fill some of those data gaps and how it might help us to weigh up some of the trade-offs that we face in this research area. So yeah, I'll just end it there and <laughs> hand back to Imran. Thanks. Uh, I realised in my rush to introduce Kath, I forgot to introduce myself. Uh, hi, I'm Imran. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually a trustee here at Nestor, and my day job is that I'm head of public engagement at the Wellcome Trust, uh, which is the health research foundation. So as you can imagine, data gaps and, and missing data is a huge issue for us too. Uh, but yes, our fantastic panel. So with me up on the stage, uh, we have immediately to my left here, uh, Rosanna Ardila. Uh, Rosanna is the Senior Open Innovation Manager at Mozilla. Um, she's a sociologist uh, with over 10 years' experience in the tech sector and in-depth knowledge of open source. Uh, and she's led Mozilla's global volunteer communities and is currently leading open innovation efforts focused on their products. Um, and next to her, we have Jessica Senna. Jessica's a computer engineer and postgrad uh, in user experience. She's worked for over 10 years as a member of GeoStart, which is the innovation group of the Catalonian Mapping Agency. Um, she's also a software engineer at Typeform and part of GeoChickas OSN. Is that pronounced right? Uh, a community that works to close the gender gap in OpenStreetMap and in different areas of geotech, where she's charged, in charge of the project uh, Streets of Women. Uh, and lastly, uh, furthest away from me, we have Federica Coco, uh, who is a stats journalist at the Financial Times. She's previously covered UK politics, policy, and stats for The Times, The Daily Mirror, and the fact-checking organisation, Full Fact. So can you join me in welcoming our fantastic panel? We're going to have a bit of a chat for about uh, 20 minutes or so, and then I'm going to throw it open to Q&A. So if you've, got, if you've got questions either about Nesta's work uh, or in particular by any of the things that our panellists raise, uh, jot them down, hold them in your mind, and we'll come and have an open discussion uh, for about half the rest remainder of the session. But I'm going to start uh, with the panel with a fairly open question, which is just to kind of probe the idea of data gaps a bit more and, and why they're important and what the issues are. Could you tell us what your um, favourite or perhaps least favourite example of a data gap is and why you care about it? And I'm going to start with Jessica because I know that she's got some slides on this topic she wants to share with us. So Jessica, okay. do you want to go first on that question? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is working the micro? Yeah, it's okay. Okay, uh, I'm here representing um, Geoticas. Geoticas is a community of Spanish-speaking women, mainly. Uh, although recently, women from other parts of the world have joined us, 
We, we are linked to OpenStreetMap and GeoWall and GeoCommunity, uh, GeoTechnologies in, in general. So um, for those of you who do not know it, OpenStreetMap is a collaborative platform worldwide uh, to create uh, open and free uh, use maps. Um, to give you an idea, it's a similar project to Wikipedia, but in a cartographic version, where everybody can collaborate, adding the local knowledge they have about their cities and their towns. And by this I mean not only adding a name of a street, but also adding uh, buildings, like for example, uh, schools, uh, shops, and useful information related to them. Like for example, when they open, and, and much more. Uh, this year it has reached the one million of collaborators. And uh, here comes uh, the problem. It is uh, estimated that only the 3% of these collaborators are uh, women. Then, what does it mean? Uh, it implies that we have a, a big gender data gap in, in OpenStreetMap. Because although you can think that when you are mapping, the criteria is, uh, has to be objective, uh, things like what to map or not, or which qualitative information to add. It's a personal choice, and, the, and therefore it's uh, subjective and may change from one person to another. That's why it's so important that more women uh, collaborate in the, in the platform, uh, uh, adding uh, the, vision, the vision that uh, we have about the reality, and providing data and information that maybe uh, men never think uh, about it, but is indeed important for us and useful for, for another women. So, uh, from Geochicas, we are trying to increase this 3% and trying to close uh, this, this data gap. And how we are doing this? Uh, we do this, or we try to do this uh, with different initiatives and projects. I'm going to share with you two, two of them that I think that are related with the topic. Uh, this one, for example, is uh, this year, uh, we have thrown a campaign for tagging and mapping um, services, equipment, and facilities, specific, specifically focused uh, on women. And why are we doing this? Because uh, currently in OpenStreetMap, there are a clear lack of official tags for this kind of uh, services for women, and also the amount of information of this uh, type is very low. So the second project is this one. It's called The Streets of Women. In this project, we have created a wall map where for, uh, in some cities we have painted the street's name after a man and the street's name uh, after a woman. To in order to do a comparison between the two groups and see which percentage represents uh, each of them. Besides that, uh, we have added for each of these women the, the corresponding link uh, to Wikipedia. By doing this, we also have detected how many of these uh, famous woman, uh, women do not have an, an entry yet. Um, there you have the link to the project. And uh, for example, this is the, the city of Buenos Aires where you can see the data associated. <laughs> and more or less, we have seen that uh, the, rat the ratio normally it's around 85, 15%. So um, with this project, uh, we were trying to show the, the scarce uh, visibility of women in the public and in digital spaces and the low, uh, low amount of uh, visible feminine models in the society. 
And some of the cities have been added after uh, throwing a collaborative campaign in social media or after a, after a hackathon activity uh, day. And okay, uh, just to give you, to let here the idea, it's uh, to keep in mind that a map uh, created without uh, gender perspective and diversity perspective is a biased map that uh, bring us to a biased uh, vision and so biased uh, decisions. Because um, how can we uh, represent the reality properly if not all the members of that reality are implied uh, on it? And that's the thing. <laughs> okay. Jessica, that's really helpful. And I think we're already starting to see the potential links between the data gaps and collective intelligence. I'm, I'm really curious there. How did you first find out that 3% figure? That's really amazing. That's uh, estimated. That's yeah. important thing because it's really difficult to give a real uh, number yeah. for this. Uh, it comes from a study, a thesis, doctoral PhD thesis, uh, done uh, some years ago. I have the reference if any, any of you are interested. And it was uh, a study with these difficulties because in the community uh, sometimes it's difficult to know specifically if the user is a woman or it's a man because it happens that uh, some of them hide uh, the, yeah. Yeah. the gender classification well, to avoid problems. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Rosanna, I'm going to come to you next. What's the data gap that you care about and why? Yeah, so um, the data gap that I'm, I'm, I'm currently most focused on is the data gap in, in voice data. Um, so I, I, I work for Missoula, um, and, and we're a nonprofit, mission-driven organization, and uh, currently we have a project called Deep Speech, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to, do an, uh, we're trying to build an open source, um, open source models for speech-to-text and, and text-to-speech, basically speech recognition and speech synthesis. Um, and as, as you mentioned, like a, a model or an algorithm is only as good as the data that, that you have. Um, and so we're, we're quite focused on, on the voice area. It is important because, I mean, as, as you know, you might have seen all of those connected um, speakers and series and all of those things, voice is becoming increasingly uh, uh, an interface that allows you to interact with technology. Um, and uh, it will unleash a lot of different interactions and possibilities, right? Uh, you, you see it, for example, voice has always been quite important for accessibility. People with, you know, that, that want to be able to, you know, they, they cannot see, but they can still interact with technology. So I think that there is a, there is a lot of, um, um, there are many opportunities uh, with voice, but currently the, you know, speech recognition systems that you have those have been created by companies that have shareholders and are trying to build products that are going to be monetized, right? Um, and that is, those are the incentives that they have. And so you have Amazon, you have Google, you have Apple. Um, and uh, if you, for example, are not part of like their core uh, target audience, right? They, the, this, the, you know, the speech recognition might not understand you. Like maybe you have an accent in English, it might not recognize you. Maybe you're old, maybe you're a woman. Um, and so these systems have been trained with data that is biased. Um, and you know, like this, this is of course um, um, optimized for, for their target audience. Um, and that is not only, that's not, for example, if, if you are lucky enough that your language is among the 20 or, or 30 languages that they actually support, there's 
a ton of languages, you know, like hundreds, thousands of languages that are actually not supported and that are not going to, you know, the people who speak those languages won't have the opportunity to actually take advantage of voices and interaction. And not only not, will not take, uh, will not have the opportunity, but also are going to be start being left behind by technology that is, that, that uses um, a voice. And so that is the particular uh, data gap that we care about because you need data sets in order to train those models, those algorithms. Um, and getting that data is very difficult and it is expensive. Um, and if you want to do it ethically, meaning you don't want to have a creepy thing listening to you, recording you, um, it is actually quite difficult because, just to give you an example, you need, and, and these are estimates from uh, machine learning experts and, 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 you know, this is art, not science, but you need around 10,000 hours um, of validated data to train, you know, like a, I'd say a general purpose, you know, machine learning algorithm that understands speech, right? Um, and that is a lot, right? If, you're, if you were to transcribe that, you need 10,000 hours of someone speaking and then you need around another 50,000 hours of transcribing that data. Like just, just let that sink in, like how difficult it is to actually get one of those data sets done. Um, and so that's, that's, that's one of the data gaps um, that, that I care about. And, and Mozilla has a project called um, Common Voice, and it's, it's a platform that allows us to crowdsource voice data from the public. And so you could go to uh, voice.mozilla.org, and you could actually come and, and, and donate your voice. So you'll see a text, and you'll be able to read it, record it, and then you'll be able to validate. And that is what we're trying to do in order to be able to collect the data from the public so that we create public data sets that in turn can be used to train those algorithms. Um, and that platform is uh, multilingual. So we're opening it up to all different languages. Like if your language is only spoken by a handful of people, you can still have it there. And so that's, that's the idea of that, that platform. And that's the, the data gap that um, I personally care a lot about. That's a really helpful illustration. Thank you. Federico, going to come, to come to you as well. <laughs> Just being earnest. Um, I uh, have two things in mind. Um, so I don't collect any data. I'm just, a, I'm just a journalist. I mean, I collect data, but I don't, I don't make it. I don't, you know, I, I don't do the wonderful work that you guys do. I just try to interpret it. So there are two things that I'm interested in. Uh, one is how we react to data gaps. And the other one is just, you know, this sort of run-of-the-mill data gap that we talk about all the time, which is the gender pay gap. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, so this is my job, right? I write about, I write stories based on statistics, but I also help reporters write stories based on statistics. And a couple of days ago, I got a weird request from uh, our correspondent in Tehran uh, asking whether I could get data on... Uh, uh, migratory patterns within Iran. So she wanted to show that uh, house prices in Tehran were so expensive that people were having to move out of Tehran. Now, I don't speak Farsi, and I thought it was impossible uh, to find these statistics, but lo and behold, I found them. And the statistics that I found were for the, from the Ministry of Interiors in Iran, and they showed the exact opposite. Actually, people were moving more into urban centers. Now, there are three ways that a correspondent can react to this information that I've just given them. One, my story is wrong. Two, the data is wrong. Or three, there's a sort of level of uncertainty. Exactly, we don't, we don't, we don't know really what's going on. This data is uh, not comprehensive. It doesn't tell me specifically about uh, how many people are 
moving out of Tehran into uh, rural centers. Um, and it, uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not very thorough. Let's put it this way. I won't go into many details because it's boring. But um, she reacted in the third way, which is let's embed a level of uncertainty in, into my story, you know, by saying we estimate, we're alleged, and, you know, unofficial figures and so on. So in integrating also personal stories, which I think was the best way to, to react because every data set that we see has a certain level of uncertainty. Now, that brings me to the run-of-the-mill gender pay gap. Um, I was at the pub with a colleague, and we were you know, discussing the fact that uh, the government, the UK government, had just introduced a law whereby all companies with 250 employees or more were going to uh, be forced to publish details of their gender pay gap. This is in the UK here. Um, and we were wondering how that was going to help us as women uh, in uh, making an argument that we were paid less than our colleagues because gender pay gap figures actually don't tell us anything about whether there is an equal pay issue within a company. And when uh, the data was, was eventually published, we found out that I think 90% of women work for companies that pay men more than women. Uh, but uh, again, none of this uh, tells us anything about whether these companies actually have equal pay issues. I mean, you think, again, a level of uncertainty, I have a hunch that there might be a problem, but you can't prove it. It doesn't prove it. So what do you do when you're going to your boss and you're making a case for, for a pay rise? How much should you ask for? So we got official statistics and we created a sort of gender pay gap calculator so that you would put your salary and it would tell you, because on average, on, in your industry, in your pay quartile, this is a pay gap. This is how much a man, theoretically, in your position is paid more than you. So I guess this is a form of collective intelligence of trying to, to solve a problem, except I didn't collect that data. It was just out for everyone to use. And it was also very imprecise. Now, I'm a bit advocate of integrating that sort of margin of error mentality in your head when it comes to data. It's, it's never like 100% true. Again, uh, this is the third example, and I'm, over, I'm finished. Uh, within my work, uh, we, uh, I, I, I also use my data skills as a member of the union at work. Uh, now, please don't tweet this, because I'm not sure I'm allowed to say <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> But uh, we uh, uh, have a gender pay gap uh, at my company, and we have a gender pay gap in my department. Um, for data protection reasons, we're not allowed to know how much everyone is paid for obvious reasons. I don't want to know, otherwise I'd be angry all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we have a breakdown, and uh, you know, if we divide it by roles, for example, editor versus correspondent, we can see that men and, and women are paid uh, differently, and men are paid more even within the same roles. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that there's an equal pay issue, right? Uh, so the union did a survey, and uh, from those people who got back to us, we found out that you know th there were reports of suspicion, at least, that uh, some women uh, you know, uh, succeeded a man into a new job and were paid much, much less. Can't really do anything about it, but we kind of had more evidence. Um, and then, uh, as we were running this campaign, some of my colleagues came to me and said, 
uh, hang on, why are you focusing uh, so much on, on gender? We definitely have an ethnic pay gap, and we definitely have a class pay gap, which nobody can argue with. It's definitely the case. Uh, so, uh, do I have like a limited, like, am I overrunning? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, the company ran a survey, and um, it, they, they, there were so few people that weren't that are not white employed at the company. Uh, I mean, it's rising, but it's very, very little. That we can't get data on the ethnic pay gap without basically revealing their identities. So it's very difficult for us to use it. But we've moved on to cl to class, and we've done a survey asking people what their parents' um, jobs were, like you know, professionals versus working class. Uh, whether they went to university or not, some questions that I thought were very extensive. And I just, you know, dived straight in, answered the question, and I told all my colleagues to do it. Turns out they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it because how is this information going to be used? I don't trust the company. So now we have this sort of data gap, uh, even within uh, with data that could be very powerful for us. Um, and I think the reason why I want to use this example is I think it's a microcosm of a bigger issue that we have with paid data uh, that well, there's two contradicting things. On the one hand, we want to keep people's privacy. We don't, you know, we don't want to be too invasive. On the other hand, we want to give people the tools to empower themselves and to know what to ask for, like in the gender pay gap calculator that we made uh, a couple of years ago and uh, you know, to use that information. And I think as well as, it, you know, again, embedding the margin of error mentality, there's also um, an, a, a, an issue with the contradictions between what helps you and what actually sort of damages your privacy. So that's my contribution. In terms of your second story, I find it really reassuring that even the stats journalist of Financial Times still gets her stories down at the pub. So I think there's, you know, there's a <laughs> pleasingly old-fashioned. Um, we've been talking about a number of different types of, gen uh, of, of data gap. Um, one of the things I'm interested in is, do you observe that there are some kind of common reasons why those gaps exist? Or is it the case that each of the gaps we're talking about has its providence somewhere else and will never attain kind of perfect data visibility? Or, or are there some kind of common trends that keep coming up that mean we have these biases in our data? Then who wants to go first on that? Um, okay. For, well, I, can, I can tell from my experience from OpenStreetMap, I think that the bias persists uh, there, or the data gap persists there, because at the end, is because this three percent uh, that we were talking that I was talking about. I mean, uh, at the end, it seems that uh, the same uh, people and the same profile of person uh, uh, they are the ones that are generating the data uh, without the diversity that that implies. And the data is a reflect of it, of this lack of, of diversity. And uh, so I think that um, actually to break this trend about this bias, this data gap. We need to do an, an active uh, effort uh, and to be proactive. But uh, previously, to to can be proactive, we need to be aware of the problem, and that's difficult because I think that uh, there are people that they are not really aware of it and think they think that the the problem does not exist, and that's why. Um, from our group, we're trying to do this kind of initiatives, like for example, the streets of women, where we put the data. Uh, in the, such a visual way that uh, it has so uh, such an impact to people that they cannot deny that there's this problem. 
And also with these initiatives, we try to engage uh, more people and more women to uh, start collaborating and being active about uh, generating data, data about uh, being an, an uh, about uh, being an active generators of this data. Well, I think that, uh, and one of the things that you that you see is like data is basically comes in all different shapes and 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 colors, right? Like right now, everything generates data. It might be moving, and I might be full of sensors, and that's generating data, right? And so I. I think that data is not equal, right? Like you, you're going to have very different uh, types of, of, of data, depending on, on what you are trying to do, right? Like you know, what's the incentive to gather the data, right? Like is, is someone interested in this? How much does it cost to gather the data? Um, you know, like anyone who has uh, gone out and done surveys on the streets, you know, like how hard it is to get that person to answer and then then punch that data in or have that, you know, like. So I, I think that there's there's a lot of of of, of issues into like generating data. Uh, like, what's also the framework? Because like usually you gather data because either you have a specific question or you know or you have a, a specific infrastructure, as I was saying. Like maybe there's some sensors, um, and so I think that 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 with with data in general, I think that we're going to have to get to a more nuanced view, right? Because data is going to start, I mean, it, it, it is already permeating basically most aspects of, of life. Just imagine your, your, your phone, how many different interactions is it right now facilitating? And each and every one of those interactions are basically data points. Um, and so I think that, that the, the question of data is actually, it, it's getting much and much and much more complex. I think for the types of data gaps that we care about, I definitely think that you know, framing the issue, um, having the right incentives, um, having the right infrastructure, um, and, and then also having the, the, the social infrastructure, the governance to, to deal with that data uh, is what's necessary. And Federica, thinking perhaps about some of the examples you look at in your work, what is the role that collective intelligence plays here, both in terms of something that can contribute to fixing the data gaps, or conversely, you know, are there issues where collective intelligence might be being held back because of those data gaps? Um, well, what I was thinking is that something that's holding us back and po polling data comes to mind with this is um, the uh, gap between uh, an analog way of collecting data and a digital way of collecting data. Uh, the, the two can be complementary, I think, because if you only do political polling, like for voting intentions, uh, digitally, then you are missing out a big part of the population that actually never goes online and that does vote. Uh, so you need, you need to integrate these two things. But, um, uh, sorry to sound a bit like the data skeptic, if you do go too far with digital, then you have a situation like you had with Cambridge Analytica, where they were collecting a lot of information on Facebook uh, and sort of, um, uh, not to invoke chaos theory, but influencing uh, voting intention as well through, through data uh, gathering and through uh, targeted ads. Uh, so that's just one uh, issue that could come up in the future if we use a lot of collective intelligence in the wrong way. Yeah. And Jessica, I mean, guess this is this is your work, isn't it? Trying to fill these data gaps th through yes. CI. How how's that gone in your experience? Yeah, uh, I was thinking about it uh, because I think um, from the work that we are, for example, the the project that I share with you, the one about uh, filling this uh, gap in OpenStreetMap about uh, equipments and services uh, for women. 
uh, we coordinate among us and we talk about it and, and we try to to bring uh, this data to the to the database to, to enrich the map and also I was thinking now about another uh, example of it about how collective intelligence can help to close these um, these data gaps and it's related with a project that is called uh, map Kibera. Uh, and Kibera uh, is a poor area from uh, Nairobi. Um, and it happens, happened that uh, commercial maps, uh, this area was uh, something that it's called a gray area. And it means that uh, normally you don't have uh, data in, in these areas. So it is a problem, you can imagine, uh, in a moment that uh, um, natural disaster happens because humanitarian services cannot uh, reach the places, cannot help the people because they, they cannot see the, the information in the map. So in, the, in that area... Uh, a specific informal settlement in that region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so in that area, uh, the people who live there, they uh, organize between themselves, they coordinate uh, between uh, themselves, and they came up to, uh, to the solution, that is uh, introduce all the knowledge, local knowledge they had about the, the area, uh, and put it in OpenStreetMap. And now, uh, if you see the comparison between how it was or how it is still in, in commercial maps, it's nothing, it's like it's nowhere, nobody's living there. Mm -hmm. And if you see the comparison in OpenStreetMap, you can see a lot and a lot of houses, streets, and you see it, it's, uh, for me it's a typical example how collective intelligence can, can solve directly this data gap yeah. in a very deep way. And Rosanna, do you, do you think there's, there's kind of a, a trick to this? Like, is it a case of finding systematic ways to shine a light on the, on the data gap? Is it about creating the participation amongst the people that have perhaps been left behind? What are the common factors that allow us to perhaps close that gap between collective intelligence and, and those data gaps? Well, so I think um, when, when, you, when you have the data, right, which is the, 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 what you've just described, um, that is the moment where you can actually act. Um, and I actually think that many times we think about, you know, like more in terms of like, yeah, what is the, uh, the crowdsourcing platform uh, doing? What is the technical implementation of this? How are we dealing with the data? But if you start thinking about, for example, um, you know, uh, companies like Uber and Waze. So what they have is that they have crowdsourced, for example, Waze. They, crowds they crowdsource a lot of data, like where are people going? What are they doing? Um, and so they know really well they, they, they're, they're helping, you know, route traffic, right? Which is, you know, uh, we, we could say, like, that's a, that's a great thing if traffic gets better because of, of this crowdsourced intelligence. At the same time, you, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's cities that have reported higher traffic after services like Uber and Lyft um, started being there, right? Like, there's more people taking the car now because it's so convenient, right? And Uber knows that. For example, I think in San Francisco, there's, like, lines of uh, lift cars, right, where you can get from one spot to the next, but they basically created their own private uh, um, infrastructure. I think CityMapper did something similar here in London. And so the question there is like, oh, is that really the answer? Do we want to have cr more, more, more cars on the streets? Is, is that the best way to actually, you know, uh, create an environment in the cities? And so I think that it is, it, like, there's a point where you have to take it out of the, just the data and out of the crowdsourcing platform, and it has to become like a public discussion. Like, how are we deciding to use this, this data? Like, who gets to benefit from this collective intelligence, right? And who, who takes the decisions uh, based on, uh, uh, of this data? Because otherwise, you know, the private companies, they're, they're very incentivized to, you know, create a private service that is going to make them rich. But is that the best thing for, for the city? So I think it's, it's important to look into that also.
come to the audience in just a second, so if you've got a question, keep it in mind, but before, I'll give you a chance to think about it. One last question um, to Federica before, before we go. Uh, we talked uh, before the session about, um, I guess, the validity and the robustness of data sets, and particularly as a journalist, you need to have a certain level of confidence in that data set. When you're looking at data sets that might have been constructed with the support and help of collective intelligence, what are the kind of things that make it usable for you as a journalist? We look at a lot of data sets that are based on collective mm. intelligence. Um, we are very strict in that we uh, get data from official organizations like the World Health Organization or the World Bank or the IMF or the Office for National Statistics or uh, countries' um, official statistics offices. Um, we occasionally uh, get data from YouGov or Ipsos Mori, but um, I mean, the Financial Times, I don't know if you know this, but it's one of the only newspapers that has a statistics department. Uh, and so we don't really, uh, we, we, we vet the data a, a, a bit more. And I can say this because I've worked for other papers and I know what they do with the, <laughs> with the data that they publish. Um, uh, we, yeah, we have a sort of very high threshold of uh, stuff. So, so far that I can think of, we haven't used that much. It's probably, you know, a sort of uh, in the future thing, maybe when I'm paid more. And, 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 when, <laughs> and when you decide whether to use a data set or not, is, is that kind of like a smell test for you? Or are there certain kind of things you look for? Is there anything we yeah, can learn, learn sample from? size, is it representative of the demographic? Is it based uh, on a sound methodology? Has it been modeled? Um, so there's yeah. things like that. So all and, and again, when we do uh, write about things that we're not certain about, we would say that, you know, it's yeah. estimated, alleged, and so on. So all factors to think about as we're constructing new crowdsourced data sets, they have to be fulfilling to your characteristics too. Yeah. yeah, okay, great. All right, we've got about um, 15 minutes of questions. So just in the interest of time, what I'm gonna ask is take a couple of questions at a time, let the panel respond and then, and then come back to you. Um, so I can see we've got one question here in the middle and was there another hand somewhere? I'm sure someone saw one go up and there's one in the corner there as well. So gentleman here and the lady on the side there. Um, hello, um, my name is Joe Bortle, I'm a systems designer. And um, what I would like to ask um, um, the panel is, um, we always can find um, good reasons why we have to um, um, close these um, um, data gaps. But I wonder um, if we also should actually consider that some data gaps actually exist for a good reason. For example, informal settlements. Um, we've seen organizations marching into informal settlements with the best intention to uh, map them out so that they could provide them with um, public services. But um, then the data was more or less open up also to the government, and the government started to use that data to actually track them down, these informal settlements, to relocate them. So um, sometimes I think we have to consider, um, are there reasons also for being invisible? And um, yeah. not only um, with the intention, we have to close the data gap. That's a really fascinating question, yeah. thank you. We've got one question on the side there as well. Thanks, um, Laura Jump from On Our Radar. Uh, I'm not really sure how to phrase this question, but it's something around feedback mechanisms and feedback loops. In a lot of our work, we're talking about voice and the role that having a voice from a marginalized community um, can be an example or a, a way to, to understand inequality. 
And I'm just wondering, with some of the work that you've done, how feeding back to the people who are giving you that data, how important that's been, and any mechanisms that you might have used to, to do that? Fascinating questions. Okay, so we've got one about can there be good data gaps or data gaps for good reasons, and one about how you establish a feedback loop between the people helping fill the data gaps and, and what the data gaps can do. Anyone want to take you through those to begin with? Maybe for the first uh, yeah. one, I actually it's a really good point. I understand you completely what you're saying. What it happened is, okay, we maybe need to find a balance between this problem and the other problem that I was talking about of humanitarian disasters and things like that. It's true that sometimes uh, when it happens that uh, the area is not properly uh, enriched with the data. We have something in OpenStreetMap that it's a hot, hot OSM. I don't know if you know it. It's a, like a humanitarian group. And when a disaster happens, they throw a quick uh, tasks uh, to fill uh, this data. Maybe we can focus uh, on this instead of having already that data prepared to rely only in this uh, quick task, but you know, it's a balance and a choice you have to, to do, and I'm not the expert person to do it, so I cannot give you a proper answer to it. Yeah. I, 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 I might, you know, like I, I, I definitely, I mean, that, that's a valid point and it's, it's I think it's me, sorry. Works. <laughs> and it, it is a very valid point. Like if you if you look at like I think in 19th century Germany they gather a lot of data, right? Uh, I think it was on homosexuality, and then the Nazis, you know, came and then they used that data, right? And so I like th that is that is a very very valid concern, right? And 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 I, and I think that that is something that you know as as as, as we have all of these technologies around us, right? We're gonna be faced we're gonna be facing that question more and more often. Um, it's, it's very hard to predict the future and, you know, what is going to happen. I mean, like, we were talking about, like, the crowd is even out on the Brexit uh, question here. And so um, it, it's very hard to predict what is going to happen and how societies are going to start organizing themselves, right? So that, that will, I think, will be a risk forever. I think if we start thinking, like, what are the actual uh, legal, what is the legal infrastructure that we currently have? And I think that that's where a lot of the innovation needs to happen, right? Like, who owns the data? Who governs the data? Who makes decisions about the data? Uh, if the data is private, who gets to use it? Like, I think that those are our questions that uh, technology has been pushing into creating all of that data, and we have not caught up with that. And so I think that there will be a lot, like, there, there will be a lot of innovation needed in those places, right? Like, what is the right legal infrastructure? What is the right social infrastructure? And how to get there, I think it's going to be difficult because again, there's data in everything, and so we might need very different approaches. Um, and so maybe they, like, we need to start finding things. Like there's people talking about data trusts, right? So you give the fiduciary uh, trust to someone, and then they start sort of like looking after the data, um, and they give you maybe some negotiating power. You know, like maybe you give your data, but there is a way to negotiate. Right now, you're, you you really can negotiate. You're like, oh, you accept? Yeah, sure, I accept, right? Like that, there's not a lot of negotiation. So I do think that we're, we're going to need a lot of innovation um, in that, and then we we'll probably have to use the tools that we use for creating products, like being agile and testing and prototyping, but for the legal and social infrastructure that we're going to need in order for that data to be used for the common good. And just on that question of participation, say I donate my voice to, to Mozilla, 
what happens after that, or perhaps what should happen after that? Well, so in the case of, of the Mozilla uh, Common Voice project, uh, we are releasing that data set under uh, the, the Creative Commons uh, uh, license CC0, right? Which means you're basically donating that data to the public, right? Um, and it is governed by that specific license in, okay. in our case. Okay, that's really good. Okay, I can already see lots of other hands going up. We've got a gentleman at the front here and the lady in the blue scarf in the middle as well. Uh, Rick Davies, evaluation consultant based in Cambridge. Um, just looking at the mapping, the open street map, which I make a lot of use of, um, it'd be interesting to look at it, uh, the data problem in terms of false negatives and false positives because the missing data is a false negative. You know, there's something there, but actually it isn't yet on the map. But the other side of the coin is the false positive where you've got something on the map which actually isn't there. And that can have, presumably, just as much negative consequences as a false negative. Can you tell us something about how that problem is addressed? Hello? Okay. Um, I was hoping if you guys could elaborate a little bit more on um, the culture. I, I work as a researcher and designer in healthcare, and one of the areas that I focus on is um, the culture around medical errors. Um, but the problem with that is errors are often not reported because people are so scared to kind of report it. And the culture, again, kind of like adds to that. And I have this idea around like what you measure determines what you value. Um, and it's, so it's interesting, like, you know, the values of a culture or of an organization and how that affects the data that's kind of being um, pulled or being represented. I was wondering if you could speak about that. Yes, I'm going to come back to you for the OpenStreetMap question. Perhaps, Federico, if you want to. Yes, yeah. uh, in OpenStreetMaps, uh, actually, it happens sometimes that we have false positives, but because maybe somebody puts data that it's not real or it's not true, or there's a lot of fun stories related with it, with Pokemon, uh, the, the, the application, and whatever. So there's a lot of things uh, to explain. But the thing is that uh, the data is uh, checked and regulated by the own community. Actually, uh, you can add the data, but we have some uh, data working groups, and they are uh, in charge of check this data and validate that everything is uh, correct. And if something is wrong, they revert it. And believe me that it's really quick. I mean, the, the wrong data does not remain there for a long time. Actually, um, I used to work in Catalonia Mapping Agency, that it's the official, and we're taking a bit the, the conversation about official data and not official data, and how you can rely on this uh, data uh, given by collective intelligence. And I can say that uh, because of the way administrations works, uh, a lot of times, OpenStreetMap is more updated than the official data that we have, at least with maps that it's in the area I know. But it happens a lot because as the community is so big, every time we ha there's a change in the, in the cities or in the streets, there's somebody that goes there and puts the, the new change. And for administration, it's like, okay, somebody has to go there, validate, blah, 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 do a lot of things, uh, bureaucracy. And at the end, I'll... A lot of times it's more updated, the collective intelligence data, than the official data. And Federico, I'm putting the, the culture onto you, because it sounds almost like you've got this burgeoning data gap-filling culture at the FT, given the st stories you're telling us about the, um, uh, the wage gap data. But 
it's a much broader question about you know medical errors and how do we establish a culture of wanting to to sort this stuff out. What what, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, um, it made me think. Um, uh, about the question that the gentleman asked earlier about what should be invisible, because I, I thought um, uh, the first thing that came to mind is what is what shouldn't be invisible, which is healthcare data. Mm. Uh, health really can't, uh, well, the med medical uh, establishment can't afford to have data gaps, uh, especially because we're moving to a system where uh, each therapy and treatment is really curated to the individual, to the very molecular level. Um, my, um, uh, I think there are errors everywhere and they have been for a very long time. I think there was a study that found uh, that uh, a lot of academic um, studies uh, didn't actually pass the statistical significance test when they reran them. Um, so to re the medical community reruns uh, the academic studies more than once, and, and, and I think it's got a very rigorous system of doing that, even though, as you say, uh, some academics are so scared of reporting errors that they won't do that. Eventually, some, you know, the, the chickens will come home to roost. The, the, the will, there will be a way to find out that there was, there was an error, or, or that the theory that they thought they had proven wasn't, didn't actually hold water. Um, but it, it, it made me think a bit, like my father is an epidemiologist, and he focuses on occupational health. So he really goes the old-fashioned way of going to the farmer's house and asking him questions about his life. And like, what did you eat 25 years ago for breakfast? And that sort of like methodical study of what a person ate, you know, what, what their day was like over their a career spanning decades uh, was a way that they collected data. Now, to me, in the digital age, that sounds like something that could be right for errors because you're interviewing, you know, you're spending a whole day with one person and you have to have a huge sample size to, to come up with, with, a, with a study, and you're just passing on all this information to your researchers who will then type it in. Um, as we move to a more uh, digital and paperless uh, system, it, it, might, it might be that it becomes more accurate. Uh, now, that's very focused on, on healthcare. Uh, it, it might be that sort of AI and that way of collecting data and collective intelligence uh, might, might mean more errors, but that it, we sort of have to go through the same a system of re-verifying everything. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, I was sense um, what I was saying earlier about really understanding the limits of our knowledge and uh, <laughs> and understanding that we're not perfect and we're not we're not machines and we integrate our errors and our biases like like both of you have said in the, the way that we collect data if we can just put that in our brains when we understand data that might solve the problem. You know, it's a margin of error. It's a, it's a understanding that this might be right on in 90% chance that it's right, but it could also be wrong. Uh, we're almost out of time. I think we've got time for one very quick final question, which I'm going to put to the audience, and I'll give the panel time to think about a final 20 seconds summing up comment from what they uh, what they've put to you. Are there any very very quick final questions anyone wants to put? If not, I'll come back to the panel. 
Um, based on what the audience said, based on what you said, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? You know, Rosanna, I know you, you really want to talk about governance and how we can make data more of a, of a public good. Any thoughts on how collective intelligence might help us do that? Well, yeah, I mean, as, as I said, I think that there's a lot of innovation practitioners here. I think that uh, sort of like trying to, to bring that approach, the same innovation approach, not only to the technical side, but sort of like the social and legal, legal infrastructure um, of the data, the data mazes that we are constantly building, I think that, that that would be great instead of like advocating um, a little bit more for those. And then as an individual, just trying, I know it's very hard, there's, it's, you know, like every time I click on accept, uh, you know, like there's a, I, I panic for a second, but then I forget, right, like how much power I am giving over to this stupid website. Um, um, but I do think that as an individual, it is, it is like, this is, this is something that will be become like it's 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 part of the way that we are organizing ourselves. Like this is part of public life, and so just trying to learn a little bit more about data, what you can do to protect your own data, uh, what are the different choices that you can make, uh, you know, to have a little bit more uh, control uh, over your data. I think that that's that's also something that. And perhaps the innovators in the room, in particular, think about governance upfront when you're thinking about what data uh, yes. you're collecting. Ex yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Jessica, any final thoughts from you? <laughs> Not enough time to think. So yeah, fair sorry. enough. And Federica, any kind of anything you really want the audience to take away from I mean, your experience with this? To sound like a broken record, data is not God. Uh, <laughs> just because it has a couple of decimal points doesn't mean it's true. Mm. Um, with polling data, we see that all the time. And how many elections and referenda have we had that, that you know had have been predicted in a wrong way? Uh, just because it's a number, it doesn't mean that it's an accurate reflection of reality. That's all I can say. Actually, yeah, I can say now. To keep in mind about the maps, that uh, a map actually always have also a bias because it's prepared and it's done by, by us, by people, and we always have this bias. So what we have to do is try to put this bias at the minimum point uh, we can, and that's the thing. Great place to end it. Can you join me in thanking our fantastic panel?